Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And bagels with cream cheese. Real cream cheese, not <laughs> vegan cream cheese. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I agree. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, a nice everything bagel, not sesame seed, but everything bagel is uh, is the path that uh, we like to go down here at Full Stack Food. Steph, you and I will have our plain and sesame bagels. Yeah, strong disagree. To be continued, definitely. <laughs> but first, welcome to the show. Well, one of the cool things, guys, about having a show like this is that you really get to look at innovation through the eyes of entrepreneurs and startups, but also through the lens of big companies. And Brett, would you say you've always been an entrepreneur at heart rather than like a corporate guy? Yeah, I mean, I, not just at heart and practice too. I mean, my the vast majority of my career was entrepreneurship and building companies. I, I mean, you know, from the time I was a kid, literally hustling to figure out any way to start something from, I used to sell king size candy bars in my locker. And then when CD burners came out, I actually bootlegged CDs. Don't tell anybody that sold those all the way to starting my first tech companies. You know, I've built video games, I've built marketplaces, I've sold a variety of different things. And I've had companies that succeeded and I've had companies that I ran right into a brick wall and failed pretty tremendously. What about you, Steph? Have you had that startup itch since you were young or could you have seen yourself at a big company? You know, I think early on in my career, I kind of thought I would maybe end up at a big company. And I don't think I truly knew myself at that point. Even when I was in the film industry, I was at small production houses, constantly building processes and figuring things out. And even now, being at a venture fund, we're still pretty small. We're a team of three right now. And so there yeah. is this entrepreneurial aspect to it of building something, of creating a brand that I just, I love. And I don't know if I'd have that opportunity. Yeah. And same here. You know, I've worked in small newsrooms, local versus national, more corporate. And I would say that the happiest I've been is in a place that was a small newsroom. It was our newsroom in Philadelphia at the NBC station. And we were all like a big family and we still keep in touch on social media. And it was just it's really cool when you find that culture and that dynamic that works. And that actually brings us to the question of this show. Can an entrepreneur be successful at a big company? Or will they always have that itch? Our guest today is a man who embodies both worlds. Amal Dixit has worked for General Mills since college, but he took a break in the middle to start what he hoped would be the Chipotle of Indian food. And now he's back at General Mills, but this time in a more entrepreneurial role. Brett and Steph, he has a really neat journey, but it also shows how food companies themselves are evolving to innovate. They're very different from what they were like back in the day. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's been wild to watch the last three to five years of how the viewpoint of innovation has changed within big traditional organizations. You know, you've had a couple of the big tech coastal firms that have always had innovation as a part of what they do. You know, some of the companies that are longer standing, the, the General Millses of the world, the Cargills of the world that have been around forever, you're seeing them start to change their paths and the way they think about external innovation. It'll be a really interesting conversation to listen to. But first, a look at some hot topics trending in food and innovation. Tufts University has received $10 million in funding by the USDA to develop an institute of cellular agriculture, which will conduct protein research. Professor David Kaplan, who's a noted expert in cultivated meat, will run the program, which will also include schools like MIT and UC Davis. Brett, there's so much research going on in the protein space right now within Star 
startups. How does institutionalizing this work in academia add to that conversation? Yeah, I mean, first of all, $10 million is a really small amount of money to do it, right? And so that's not much, especially when you look at companies like Upside Foods and some of the big ones that are out there that have raised a tremendous amount of capital in the space to just do it for their own project or idea or concept. And so $10 million, that's one thing that stood out to me was that it's not a tremendous amount of money. But a lot of this type of biotech does come from university already. And so it sounds like they're trying to institutionalize it and put more of a process behind taking, building it, developing it. We're an investor in a company that's out of Boston called Boston Meats, which is technology that did come out of a university and so it's already happening in the startup space, and hopefully this will make it go faster. There'll be more of it. Next, Blank Street, a Brooklyn-based specialty food truck coffee chain, has raised $25 million in a Series A round led by General Catalyst and Tiger Global only months after it closed $7 million in seed funding through three venture firms. TechCrunch reporting that the company is already fundraising for its Series B round because of the overwhelming investor interest. What's so special about it? It's tech-enabled. Its coffee is up to 30% cheaper than Starbucks. They have food like bagels and tacos. They also don't have to buy expensive real estate to operate. And in fact, each of the 14 locations hit profitability within two months, and they expect to have 100 locations by next year. They are growing like wildfire. Steph, we were just talking about bagels and cream cheese and, you know, coffee going along with it and everything. I mean... It seems like the food trucks have been here for a while. I'm just surprised that something like this is, is such a hot thing when it's something we've been hearing about for a while. Well, I think it's all about the tech enablement aspect of it, even more so than the kind of mobility of it, of how are they actually keeping costs down? How are they disrupting the supply chain aspect of food delivery, even more so than the customer access? I don't know. Brett, what would you say? I mean, one thing when you hear coffee, investors have tended to get excited about coffee because it's such a large market. And so it's a, I think it's like an $80 billion market in the US alone. And so it's just a huge, huge market. It is interesting. It's like, why hasn't this been done before? There's definitely something there, right? If you don't have to pay for the real estate, if you're able to get around that aspect of it and you actually can build loyal drinkers through it, it seems like it has a, some real potential in front of it. I mean, it is a big market. People drink coffee. I say like one thing that's like curious to me is actually timing of this because the food trucks have actually struggled during the pandemic and because they're dependent upon lunch crowds, largely, especially in large metros, lunch crowds leaving offices. And so the timing of this is kind of interesting of like people going back to work or not. But they have two ginormous funds, two of the biggest funds in the world backing them. So they got plenty of money now with Tiger and, and GC behind them. I would think that there's also an opportunity to get really sticky customers because people are so ritualistic about their coffee, especially in the mornings or even afternoons, I guess, for that pick me up. It is pretty funny. Yeah. One thing on the coffee food truck thing, I wonder if it works in the suburbs, right? Because you think about the Starbucks, the Caribou's, like the big coffee chains out there. And, and they have a huge, huge footprint in the suburbs as well, where people will pull over, get their coffee, go through coffee drive through. Like there's no real reason why a food truck couldn't do that as long as they could find a parking lot to hang out in. But would, would people search it out and find it out in those instances as well? Or is it capped to major metro areas? Hmm, maybe if it's near schools, right after school drop off or something that people do every day, at least, you know, for the most of the year. You're trying to get a bunch of eight year olds caffeinated, Aditi? 
<laughs> well, hopefully just their parents, right? Finally, there's a new movement emerging around blue food. By blue food, we mean fish, seaweed, and other aquatic nutrition. Recent research in nature says these types of foods, which aren't as resource intensive to produce, can be the key to reducing malnutrition and obesity while minimizing impact on the planet. Guys, do you think that this is a movement that could gain traction? I'm curious out of the three of us, like, have any of us changed diets over the last couple of years and moved to more fish and or away from like away from like chicken and beef and more into fish at all? We have it like our house. We have. We've gotten a little heavier in fish and moved a, a little bit from red meat, but haven't moved from chicken yet. I grew up eating a lot of fish anyway. And so that really hasn't changed much. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, a big part of protein and the movement of the consumption of protein is price. And and so as we can bring the price and cost of seafood down, more and more people will adopt it as the protein of choice. And so right now, like people eat beef and chicken because it's really inexpensive on a per pound basis. Coming up, we'll talk to Amol Dixit about his twin dreams, one entrepreneurial and one tied to a big food company. Can they coexist? Amol Dixit is used to living in two different worlds. For one, he calls himself a company guy and an entrepreneur. Amol heads up G-Works, or General Mills' startup incubator, which creates companies that will eventually be spun back into General Mills. The team is made up of what General Mills calls corporate entrepreneurs, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but Amol insists it's not. He should know. He's worked at the consumer packaged goods giant for 15 years. But in the middle of that time, he was laid off. And instead of going to another big company, Amol decided to follow his dream of democratizing Indian food by launching a food truck. That dream is rooted in his own personal story, which again begins with Amol living in two worlds. It all started in Flushing, New York, where I was born, the son of Indian immigrants. And we moved to uh, a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called Uniontown, Pennsylvania, when I was five. And when we moved there, we were only the second Indian family ever to live in that town. It was such news for that small town that uh, the newspaper, local newspaper, came over, took a picture of my family in front of our house, and there was an 8 by 11 picture of our family on the front page with the caption, attractive new family here. Attractive or attracted? Attractive. But we talk a lot about how, what was the conversation in the newsroom? What adjective are they going to use to describe this different looking family that was in their town? And they landed on attractive to probably play it a little safe. But yeah, we still have that picture framed. We have a copy of it framed in my house here. Five-year-old Amol, my two sisters and my parents in front of our house in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. So in my first week at General Mills, the team I was on, we went on a field trip to Walmart to observe the Walmart shopper. There was about 10 of us there. I was the only one of the 10 of us on the team who had ever been in a Walmart before. So for the other folks, it was like being in a zoo, watching people in the wild. In my mind, I was thinking my mom's probably at Walmart right now shopping, doing her weekly shopping. (laughs) So moments like that made me realize that while I would never want to raise my kids and my family in Uniontown, I'm really glad I did. Did you always have an interest in doing something entrepreneurial? 
Well, I always say like I'm clearly not one of these like born entrepreneurs or else I wouldn't have spent my first 15 years out of college at General Mills before starting my my own business. But having said that, I was always as a kid doing those little things that I guess you could consider to be entrepreneurial. So for instance, you know, in junior high, I, me and a friend, we bought a table at a baseball card show and sold our cards. I would, at garage sales, sell cards and things like that. What led you to General Mills? So when I was in college, I went to college thinking I was going to become a sports journalist. And so all my summer internships were in sports journalism, either at newspapers or at TV stations. And then my senior year in college, I was actually getting ready to fly to Chicago. I was in Philadelphia. I was getting ready to fly to Chicago to meet with a guy who helped college kids with their resume tape. And about a month or so before I was supposed to go out there, I saw General Mills was coming on campus to do their corporate presentation. And I thought, okay, I'll go to the presentation, get some free food, that sort of thing. And so I went and yeah, they, this sounds like a pretty good job. It was, you know, it was a brand management job. I didn't know what brand management was, but they talked about how you get to manage these brands that you're all familiar with. So Count Chocula, Lucky Charms, like that's cool. I'll I'll submit my resume. And so I got the offer about a week before I was scheduled to fly out to Chicago to meet with the resume tape guy. And I remember thinking, wow, like General Mills is willing to pay me this for, I don't know any, you know, I'm a 22 year old, I don't know anything. And so I decided I can put the sports journalism thing on hold and try out this marketing thing. So you were working up the ladder at General Mills and then you get this entrepreneurial itch. How did that come about? Well, to be perfectly frank, the working up the ladder piece, to be honest, it I wouldn't say I was still working up the ladder because what happened was I started out in brand management and like at a lot of big companies, there's pretty defined career paths. I, a few years in, realized that my passion, my area of interest, where I thought I added the most value was not in the general management area, which is what the brand management function is. And so I declared that innovation was my area of focus it quickly became clear that there was no career path, upward career path for someone who wanted to focus on commercial innovation. And so I started figuring out and navigating my own career path, knowing eyes wide open that there's going to be a ceiling. At at some point, I'm not going to be able to just create more and more jobs for myself. But I went over to corporate strategy. A colleague and I, we kind of resuscitated General Mills Corporate Venture Capital Fund And it was while I was in the corporate venture capital group, I got laid off. I'd been there 15 years. There was no bitterness. But I thought to myself, well, what do I want to do after this? Do I want to just go to another company? And since I'd only worked at General Mills since undergrad, I just want to do something as different as possible. And I thought starting my own company would be the most different thing I could do. Unlike a lot of entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs, I didn't have the brilliant idea and then try to figure out how to make a business out of it. I first decided I want to start a business. So I took a few months after leaving General Mills to explore a few different ideas. And so it was like, I think this idea of democratizing Indian food is where my passion is. 
I think it ties to the fact that we just had our first kid. And, you know, when you have your first kid, there's that element of what do I want to pass along to my kids? And it just hit me how important it was for me to try and pass along the Indian culture, knowing I wouldn't be able to do it nearly as well as my parents did to me and my sisters, because, you know, we're a generation removed. That's how Hot Indian kind of came to be. Democratizing Indian food is not an easy task. How did you go about doing it? My first thought was packaged food. I was coming from General Mills, 15 years there. So I think I just defaulted to, okay, I'm going to start a packaged food business. So I started working with a friend who's a chef who actually had also just gotten laid off from General Mills. And I explained to him my vision. And I said, I'm not a chef at all. So I... I said to him, like, would you want to work with me on this just to figure out what are the products, the recipes, blah, blah, blah. And he he liked the vision. So, yeah. And the thing is, he lives in Boulder. So I went down there, spent a weekend with him. Well, I said, I think wraps are the could be the first product, the first format. You know, they're approachable, they're accessible. Even if someone doesn't know the stuff that's in it, they might be willing to try a wrap. And so I said to him, the assignment he had was make creative Indian wraps. And one of the people asked me, what would you call this thing? Not the brand, but like this product. And I was like, um, I don't know, a street wrap. Yeah, and this was my General Mills, like not just calling it a wrap, but like what's a marketing spin on this product? And you know, this idea of street food was starting to become a thing. And so I said, street wrap. And so I found a chef who I still is with Hot Indian to this day, Chef Janine Holig. She's amazing. Hired her at the start of 2013. And we launched the truck in May of 2013. And that first year I was with the truck every single day, you know, taking the orders, handling the money, all that. You know, we talk about at General Mills getting close to the consumer. I couldn't have been closer to the consumer here. And it was awesome. I was probably a little too close to the consumers for some of their tastes. Being able to have a conversation, being able to see their reaction when they took that first bite was just, you know, priceless. The first time I actually ever met a mole, he never doesn't remember meeting me. I actually got some food from his food truck and I gave him a high five because you used to get a discount if you got a high five, I think, or like, or after you ordered, you would get a high five. But literally, that's the first time I met a mole was Wait, I ordered some food. Paul? No, it was in Minneapolis side. Huh. And I went to his food truck, got some food and gave him a high five without really knowing each other. So the high five, we probably did this for a couple of years. Our loyalty card was called the high five yeah, yeah. loyalty card. So I'm big into puns. And so there's a lot of high, which is hot Indian, a lot of high puns. So like immediately I was like, okay, high five. There's got to be something with that. So it's like, let's make that our loyalty thing. So punch card, once you got five punches, you got, I think, $5 off and a physical high five from me. Yep. So that must have been how we met. <laughs> Do you know how to cook them all? Poorly. <laughs> well, I'm curious, would you use food a food truck again as another way to start a brand and or whether it's a consumer packaged good or whether it's a restaurant or a quick service restaurant brand? Is the food truck path a smart path, you think? I think it's a very smart path because you can bypass the intermediaries that you have to rely on if you go if you just launch directly into retail. You can go with a food truck. It's literally a kitchen on wheels. It's a marketing vehicle, literally. And so as we thought about that first year thinking, who is our who do we think our consumer is? Who do we want our consumer to be? We consciously didn't just 
camp out Minneapolis lunch five days a week because we knew the bigger picture of this was, you know, we want the people in St. Paul to know about us. Even though business would be a little lower here, it's let's take our truck to where we want to get the right consumer feedback. I remember the discount, how I got the discount. I actually think I did a dance. I think that's how I got a discount was dancing, not the high five. Another one of our little things at Hot Indian, which still carries over today in our restaurants, is at checkout, if you do a Bollywood dance move, you get a dollar off. Pretty sure my dance was so good, I got $2 off. Oh, I could see. Oh, I thought you had to pay us. It was so bad, but. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find that you had a lot of people who had never tried this kind of food before? First timers that kept coming back for the whole experience, the dance, the high fives, all of that? Our consumer, the way I thought about it was people who were either intimidated or scared or by traditional Indian food. And so what we saw at the truck a lot was, especially in like downtown Minneapolis, Indian American 30-somethings bringing a bunch of their non-Indian American friends, and then they would choreograph a dance move for all of them so they'd get a bunch of dollars off. That was very cool and, and kind of rewarding for me to see that these Indian American people were kind of adopting hot Indian as their own to introduce their friends as like a safe way to introduce their friends to Indian food. Like we get all the time, hot Indian, does that mean it's all spicy? And which is, as you you could probably guess, one of the reasons or one of the things that scares people away from Indian food. That's always been a little bit, I love the name because the way the name came up, and you didn't ask this, but I'll tell you the story. When I was first coming up with the name, I was being a little too corporate about it. And, and, you know, they all, all my name ideas had like the word masala or Bombay, or, you know, just. And so one day I, I looked at my wife and this is a true story. I think my wife is a very attractive Indian woman. I think she's a hot Indian. <laughs> I said to her, I was like, what, what if I just call this thing hot Indian? And she kind of chuckled. I was like, you know what? That's it. That's that's the reaction I kind of want. I didn't really think through the whole, is the word hot going to scare a lot of people off, you know, which I probably should have thought of. But I think the name has given us a lot of, a lot of runway with what to do with the brand. So I'm, I'm happy with the name. And so it was going to be just, just hot Indian. And then when I went to get the URL and the Twitter handle and all that stuff. You can imagine if you put in hot (laughs) Indian. Your searches were... uh... I had to clear my cookies, my history. Yeah, it was ugly. And so that's why Hot Indian Foods is the official name. And then you're having so much fun and you're successful. Somehow you came back to General Mills. How did that happen? Well, this is kind of like your question about how I left General Mills where you just just... kept getting fired. (laughs) In this case, I I mean, you could say I fired myself in a way from Hot Indian in the sense that I appreciate you saying it was successful and everything. But like the reality is the brand was bigger than the business, if that makes more any sense. The brand was more successful than the business actually was. And before COVID, I had a heart to heart with my chef and said, listen, both for the business and for me personally, I need to step away from the, from the day-to-day of Hot Indian. I think you, Janine, are ready to step up 
to operating the restaurants on a day-to-day basis. So I said, I need to bring financial stability to the family. And so taking my limited salary, but also my healthcare off the books for Hot Indian, it's like, that's going to be good for the company. And then if I find a good job, that's going to be good for the family. And so that's what got me to step back. So this was February of 2020 when I started exploring. And G-Works had been created like six months prior to that or so. And it was being positioned as an internal startup incubator. And when I talked to some people there and learned more about it, I was like, that's the job I would have wanted when I was at General Mills before. And now it seemed like it was coming from the top. You know, it was our COO's baby. So you knew there was that executive commitment, that investment, there was infrastructure. It wasn't this rogue little side team. And so... I interviewed and uh, I feel very fortunate. I I got the offer and accepted the offer about a week before everything shut down in March. Why did General Mills make this move and then start going towards the innovation space that you you were thinking about before you left and why didn't it matter? So I think there was you know, really good acknowledgement and understanding that our current portfolio at General Mills, just growing that current portfolio isn't going to be enough, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now to be a top tier CPG company, to be what is now our vision, to be the undisputed leader in food. And so G-Works really checks the boxes on those second and third boxes where we are, we are intentionally detached from any of the established operating units. Our scope is to create, build and scale adjacent or transformational businesses to the General Mills portfolio. I know that you guys have, for instance, 301, which is General Mills' venture arm, just like so many consumer packaged goods companies do. How come an arm like that isn't enough? Yeah, so it's interesting because 301 Inc., when it started, was actually set up to be an internal new brand creator. I think some of the things I said earlier about why I was excited to go back and, and join G-Works leadership, executive commitment, and building infrastructure, a lot of those conditions didn't necessarily exist with previous efforts. And, you know, they were all obviously well-intentioned, had really great people working on them, but the time wasn't right for General Mills. And so 301 Inc. shifted to focus exclusively on external investments. So how is it different? I mean, a lot of times great startups start because their founders have a very specific personal pain point. But in this situation, it's the opposite, where you're recruiting people and then tasking them with certain problems that they take on. How does that impact the whole process? Yeah, and and it is something we are, we're definitely working on. Everything from should these founders be compensated and incented differently than if they were in a traditional brand role so that they do feel that founder mentality, that ownership. So, you know, there's that piece of it. But then to your question, we're experimenting with at what point do we bring the founder team into the process? So an example, as we're scoping out now, the next few teams are going to start. We're really trying to be intentional about hiring for that problem. In a typical accelerator, there's that journey of the company that's either going to be acquired or go public. There's specific exit points. What's the end goal for these companies? Yeah, the end goal is for them to spin in to General Mills because it is about fundamentally changing General Mills' growth trajectory. Now, that doesn't mean 
they need to fit neatly into an existing operating unit. There may be situations where if it is a little bit closer in, you know, more of an adjacency, that there is a logical, natural home three years down the road when it is ready to graduate. But there be, may be other situations where you know, the business that a G-Works team creates is, doesn't fit anywhere in our existing structure, and we have to create a new a G-Works operating unit. Do you ever have any remnants of that entrepreneurial itch to scratch? Do you ever have that thought of maybe going back to hot Indian food to see that dream through and that goal to democratize Indian food? Yeah, I mean, there's, it is um, an internal struggle where on a few fronts, there's the, I still have so much passion for that mission. I feel like man, I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish, just like personally. So there are days I feel like an absolute failure because it's like, how could I not make this thing work, Hot Indian? You know, and my wife does a great job of reminding me of all the good that we have done and what we created and the employment, all those things. So she's really great about that. And then I, there's days like, Two days ago, my kids, so we, we were in the state fair this year, Hot Indian. We were in the food building right next to a funnel cake stand. And that funnel cake stand, it's a small family business. The 10-year-old son was working the, the register for a bunch of the days. So I just I got to talking to him, and then I told my kids about this, that there's a 10-year-old boy doing this. When we went as a family, I introduced my kids to, the, to their 10-year-old son, Two, three days ago, my daughter, and this was on a day where I was like, I'm ready to be done with Hot Indian. How do I unwind this thing, minimize the damage, minimize the losses, walk away, you know, with my held head, my head held up high, whatever. My son comes to me, he's like, he's seven. He's like, oh, I can't wait in three years to work, work for you at, at a Hot Indian stand. My daughter, she's nine. She's like, next year, daddy, I'm going to work at the Hot... Like, I almost, I, I did, I teared up. And I said to my wife, we got to keep this thing alive, you know, <laughs> like, so there's a lot of pulls on, I need a break. And there's a lot of pulls of got to figure out a way to keep this thing alive. All right. You ready for lightning round? One word answers. Only one word answers. Okay. You ready? Best flavor of Cheerios. Honey, that's two words, but. That's the answer. Okay. I'll, that one, we'll allow it. Okay. Spinach paneer or vegan aloo gobi? Aloo gobi. Ah, you're wrong. Spinach paneer is My opinion is wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. You're correct. Your opinion is incorrect. Aditi, what do you think? My mom's spinach paneer. Spinach paneer. You were, in fact, wrong. Not you, Aditi. Uh, I was pointing to a mole when I said that. Dirty little secret. I don't like spinach much. (sighs) Spinach is delicious. Early stage focused innovation at an enterprise is a fad. True or false? False. Would you have been able to start Hot Indian and get it to where you did without your General Mills experience? No. What's your best dance move? I I don't know how to do this as a one-word answer. Well, then do two words. Well, it's not a dance move that has a name that I know of. Okay. But I have a history of, especially at weddings, of doing this move with the bride's mother, where... I like where we're going. I fake 
slap her. He's making a slapping motion. <laughs> and I really like Rizzo. somehow they always know to go with it with their head. <laughs> it works well. All right. That's my go-to. That might have worked better as a visual medium, but I like it. We're leaving that in. <laughs> What's your favorite food at the state fair? Island noodles in the International Bazaar. Oh, God, got it wrong again. There was like three acceptable answers there, and that was not one of them. The cheese curds are the best. The mousetrap cheese curds is the best thing. That not compared to the Indian cheese curds or paneer pakora that we had this year. So <laughs> Easier to innovate externally or inside a big corporation? Externally. Is there any way I can give nope. some context? One word. All right. one word. Externally was his answer, in case anybody didn't get yes, that. Yes, yes. That's all I got. You survived the speed yeah. round. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. I'm Rob Forsyth, co-founder and CEO at Milk Movement. Thanks, Rob. What problem are you solving? So we're a dairy supply chain, cloud-based software. And dairy, the problem is, is there's a ton of legacy software that everyone in the supply chain is using. So those legacy softwares don't talk to each other. And what happens in the supply chain is there's problems come up at any point. Maybe a truck that they don't know where it should go to, a plant needs more milk than what they planned. And when you've got all these softwares that don't talk and it's not cloud-based, it's not web-based, it's not real time, how do you solve problems on the fly? So the, the issue is actually, you don't typically know you have problems. And then once you do realize those problems are seven days old and you need to go back and figure out how you could fix them. So how are you solving it? So our whole philosophy is that as soon as data is available in the dairy supply chain, everyone who needs to see it should be able to see it. So if a lab result is available at some point, that farmer's lab result, the cooperative, the processor, everyone should see that lab result, either from a call, email, text notification, or just logging into our site. That's cool. What's the big vision? How are you guys going to take over the world? We have a multi-phased approach to taking over the world. <laughs> um, right now, it's, it's getting the dairy cooperatives. And we're doing really well at that right now. We've got about 9% of the entire U.S. dairy cooperative market cornered as clients today. We're going to keep grabbing, keep getting at market share. And then it's your processors. So maybe your Fortune 500s you're familiar with, your Danuns, your Nestle's, your General Mills, they're next. And then after that, phase three of taking over the world is farm suppliers, like feed suppliers, chemical suppliers, and eventually going all the way to the consumer. Right now, I'm here with Dan, the CEO and co-founder of Clean Crop Tech. Dan, what problem are you guys solving at Clean Crop? So Clean Crop is tackling the trillion-dollar problem of food waste and food safety drivers uh, around the world. Uh, around something close to 500 million tons of food is wasted in a given year. I'm responsible for 7% of greenhouse gas emissions, and these same contaminants that drive that waste are responsible for 600 million cases of foodborne illness every year. Contaminants that cause that waste. So is the contaminant piece the problem you're solving? Yeah. So you can think about things like salmonella, E. coli, listeria. There's a huge range of toxins on grains and nuts that we address, but also just the sort of common yeasts and molds. How are you solving this problem of toxins uh, that are causing this tremendous amount of food waste? So we have a breakthrough technology that combines electricity with different blends of food-grade gases to selectively break down these contaminants while leaving alone those things that matter for food quality. So we can tune our process to degrade salmonella while leaving alone the fats and the lipids and the micronutrients that matter for the quality of that food. 
So it's also like a safety thing. It's also it could be a food safety thing, not just a food waste thing. Yeah, we uh, it's a two birds, one stone approach, which has been really compelling for most of our customers. Got it. So what's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? Yeah, we see a huge range of applications that our technology works on. Everything from extending shelf life on meat and seafood to nuts and grains, uh, enhancing seed germination, all using the same basic technology stack and hardware. And so within the next five to 10 years, we're uh, planning on becoming the Dow Chemical of plasma treatment for ag and food. So going back to our original question, guys, can an entrepreneur be successful at a big company? Thoughts? I think what's even more interesting is can a big company person be successful as an entrepreneur? I mean, we should come back and talk to a mole in about three years and see how it's going, right? There's definitely really great founders that have come out of big end enterprises in the past. I do think that it is a tough transition to do. What I will say is I'm seeing more and more internal innovation and true like business building within large corporations right now than I ever have before. So we'll see how it turns out. Definitely an unfolding story and it'd be cool to do a follow-up with him. See you guys next week. Adios. Adios. 